There is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. We're going to talk about G.K. Chesterton and the importance of pursuing holy aspirations, even in that difficult confrontation when people realize there are failings in the world around us. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there is one other with me here in the studio. Hello. Um, Brother John, would you mind uh, introducing yourself and going ahead and opening us up in prayer? Okay, my name is John Mills, and I am glad to be here with you today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and discuss these issues, uh, to learn from you and from your word, and to become more like you. And we give you praise in your name. Amen. Amen. So, Brother John, you gave a great lesson this week on Ezra. And there was one particular scripture in Ezra chapter 9, which really illuminates the conflict that happens between holy aspirations and the immorality of sin. Oftentimes within modern Christianity, we have shied away from the conversation that sin really does have real consequences. And we've put such a high commodity on avoiding confrontation that we have forgotten that there is a natural confrontation that happens between the aspirations of holiness and the immorality of sin and the consequences that it has on the world around us. So today I want us to look at some G.K. Chesterton quotes that I'm going to have you respond to. But I want us to begin by looking at that scripture in Ezra chapter 9 verse 6 where Ezra says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you. My God, for our inequities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And again, that's Ezra 9.6. And in that, Ezra is saying that he is ashamed that he and his brothers and sisters, their culture there with the people of God, they have failed to live up to the great standards of holiness. And in this state of lapse, there is a confrontation that one must acknowledge. And it's this confrontation between the aspirations of holiness and the immorality of sin, because the two can't exist together. They really are in conflict with one another, and one must choose, for you can only serve one master. John, how important is it for us to recognize at the church this truth that there is a confrontation of sin that we must acknowledge and we must deal with? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of the most important things we realize you know, the idea that sin and holiness do not go together. And, you know, we don't like to emphasize that much, I think, because uh, sometimes we get the idea, well, if we talk about sin too much, it makes us self-righteous and avoiding sin. You know, the idea is that our holiness comes from God. And so it's not something that's, you know, that's we're praising ourselves for when we say we are holy. But if we're going to be a holy people, we have to be, you know, totally separate from sin. The, the idea behind sin is that we're keeping control and we're deciding what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And that's the opposite of holiness. Sure. Well, let's talk about G.K. Chesterton and about our current culture, because it's very clear that in our current culture, there are a lot of people that both deny sin and they die, deny the, the implications of sin. Uh, there are songs, there are whole works of art out there that basically just celebrate debauchery and they deny sin. Now, G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, he was writing on this topic, and I've paraphrased one of his paragraphs here saying, Some have a strange take on the virtue of charity. Specifically, they think that it can be charitable to release people from judgment by telling them that there are no sins to forgive. 
This is the strange idea that one can make it easier to forgive sins by simply saying there are no sins at all. What are your thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I, we see that in our society very, very strongly with this idea, you know, that the greatest virtue is tolerance, which is letting everything go, you know, and never condemning anything. Uh, and, and so it is, it is really a strange idea when you, when you look at it. Yeah, and to the point of tolerance— if you assert tolerance, tolerance as the highest virtue, you are going to be tolerating evil. And that's simply because you cannot serve two masters, and evil is always going to take advantage. It's going to be very much like the book of Daniel chapter 6, where King Darius, he sees that the law is being abused to really execute Daniel as the attempt that's being made. But if you tolerate everything, you will be tolerating evil. That's just something you cannot escape. Yeah, when you stop to really think about it, I mean, you get into this contradiction because, you know, at its core, tolerance of everything, well, are you going to be tolerant of intolerance? Yes. And that doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't. Well, I mean, it's it's a lot of times we look at things like the coexist bumper sticker, which it's not possible for that to exist either because if they all exist together, then there is no fundamental truth, and then there's no truth, and you have nothingness. It all, it all goes back to Genesis one, that void, <laughs> that is there of nothing. Uh, but let's get to a couple of more of these G.K. Chesterton quotes. G.K. Chesterton, and he's writing this, you know, a hundred years ago. He says, "We are on the road to producing a race of men that are too mentally modest to believe to believe in the multiplication table." We are in danger of seeing philosophers who doubt the law of gravity as being a mere fancy of other men. The scoffers of old time, they were too proud to be convinced of anything. But these today are too humble to be convinced. And really what he's asserting there is that in the old times, people, they had their firm convictions and they didn't want to go along with anything that would challenge those convictions. But today, and this is him writing 100 years ago, but he saw where things are going, People were so ashamed and repulsed by having the truth, by having firm convictions that they, they didn't want to be convinced of everything. Just everything is wishy-washy, you know, tolerate everything, even though that is a impossible standard. And again, like you said, if you think about it for five seconds, it makes no sense. But you don't think about anything for five right. seconds. You just kind of have this perpetual state of false humility where you don't permit anything. What are your thoughts on this? Was Chesterton a prophet or where do you think this is, is going and applying today? Well, yeah, he certainly hit our, you know, our culture today, you know, and, and the idea this is a it's a very false modesty. Uh, we don't want to say that we know something for sure, because if we insist we're right, then that means we're insisting someone is wrong. Yeah. You can't be right without someone else being wrong. It's impossible for everyone to be right. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we get this idea that I'm just going to be a good guy. And, and go along with everybody and not insist. But that leaves you just completely uh, at sea, really, with no idea of, of what you're saying or what to hold on to. Yeah, and this is creates a void of meaning as well. You know, we have the platitude thrown around that everything happens for a reason. Well, if that were the case, then nothing would really have any meaning or substance at all. That's kind of how I take that. Do you have any thoughts? Is that the same logic we see going on here? Uh, yeah, it sure is. There is. Let's go on to the, the next G.K. Chesterton quote here. He says, The modern critics of religious authority and religion 
are like men who should attack the police without ever having heard of burglars. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, that fits right in with, you know, what's been going on today with, you know, these calls to defund the police and things like this. You know, I we've got problems with police. I know that. But, you know, you cannot just get rid of police with the idea that everyone's going to uh, obey the law because we know that's simply not true. Yeah, and I think that also takes us to the point where we have to realize that if the church wants to be the church and not just be a different social club that just wears the branding of the church, we have to give a different message than the world. Because if movements or things are originating out of people who do not serve God first, it is always going to go in a sinful direction. Regardless of what intentions or regardless of whether or not there's a real issue that people are trying to address, there is a need for us to to value God's law and God's instruction because these pieces of wisdom, they have heard of burglars. The wisdom in scriptures of old, they have heard of these problems. And they, they're giving us guidance on how to navigate these waters. But many in our modern day and age, and another quote from Chesterton in the same chapter, is he says, those who, who criticize religion, they act as if religion never had any reason to it at all. It's not just that they're wanting to assert that there's no reason in it to it today, though they may start there. But they ultimately want to move in a direction that says there was never any reason in this at all, there was never any value in it at all, and it should be rejected in total so we can have what we want, our new vision of the future. And history tells us that is always bad. That's always a, a destructive outcome. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or you want us to go ahead to the next quote. Well, you know, the idea... If we know what is right as a church, you know, we have an obligation to speak that out. Yeah. You know, we are not doing anyone any favors by saying we know the truth, but we're not going to insist upon it. Yeah. We're going to let you believe whatever you want. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The next quote I want us to look at says, The peril that is affecting the human intellect is that it is free to destroy itself. Just as one generation could prevent the very existence of any future or next generation by entering into a monastery or jumping into the sea without having any children, so one set of thinkers can in some degree prevent future thinking by teaching the next generation that there is no validity in any thought at all. It is idle to always be talking of the alternative of faith and reason, because reason itself is a matter of faith. So I'll let you respond to that. And then there's an addendum to that quote I'll add later. But Yeah, well, I mean, he's certainly true that, you know, what we what we espouse, what we teach to the next generation has a big effect, you know, on 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 their thinking with the idea that, you know, some things won't even enter into their heads if uh, if we haven't taught it to them, if we haven't passed it on. And I don't I don't think we're often aware of how much the worldview that we have, how much it limits really how we think of things. Oh, yeah. Our, our worldview is a larger indicator of how we will navigate the world than are our intentions. And that's just unmistakably true. And the addendum to that quote that I want to add there is the title of this episode. It says, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. And now that's a tongue twister to read. Mm-hmm. I know I've got like a busted lip today that's making me talk a little funny, but that, that one really is a tongue twister. But nonetheless, it's true. And I'll read it again. It says, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. 
And really, this is the notion that you can teach people a worldview that has no interest in reason. It has no interest in faith. It has no interest in valid truths. It just seeks to fulfill itself. It's that nihilistic void of nothingness. And whether you talk Nietzsche or whether you just talk the sinful carnal nature, this is something which is a product of being separated from God, being separated from the truths of God. And when you have a worldview that only holds itself accountable, in other words, I don't want to be held accountable to anything larger than myself, you do find yourself put in a place where there is a thought that stops all thought. And I know for a lot of people, myself included, if you're someone who is interested in critical thinking and reason, you kind of want to say that it's good to entertain all thoughts and explore things. And we're kind of reluctant to admit that there is a thought that stops thought. And if I'm being completely honest, I think this line of thinking that stops thought is really what is taking hold of our culture. It's really what is seizing and, and being spread the most. What are your thoughts on this, this whole notion of there is a thought that stops all thought? Yeah, well, you know, really, that's kind of uh, the the whole basis of political correctness, you know, yeah. the idea that there is a an attitude or whatever that stops you from really thinking about a subject, considering a subject, because you've already decided what is politically correct about it. And when we say politically correct, it's not just political ideas, but, you know, there are lots of areas where that yeah. that thinking goes on. Sure. And, you know, Chesterton, he wrote about this, and he would have different names for the different classes of people. He would look at the academics. Um, he would call them things like the longitudinal thinkers or longitudinarians, um, which almost sounds like a Jules Verne geographical mm -hmm. term. But how there would be a group of elites who did think that their belief system, which it was a belief system, they would assert this and they would want to do away with the old Christian structures. Even the old scientific structures that predated themselves, even though when you think about this being written at the turn of the you know, 19th, 20th century, there's not a lot of scientific history. But yet, even within that short time window of just a few decades, there were people who said, you know, if it's not signed off by me... I want to reject it. And he would talk about how there was there are people that are advocating for a belief system that has no name. Now, I've come to call this the spirit of the age, the idolatrous god of the age, whether you look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Um, I've also had an evolution here in the last few weeks and just called it legion. <laughs> yeah. But there is this whole mentality, like you said, with political correctness being really an appendage of this that says, we have already made up our minds on this. It's not even permitted to discuss, to, to talk about it, which is really a shame because that, that ultimately ends up hurting the interest of people that you claim that you want to help um, if there was any interest in actually wanting to help that as well. So I want us to wrap up by returning back to how we can have positive thought and how we can have um, an important movement towards reason and resolving this confrontation that naturally happens. Ezra, he says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, for our iniquities have risen up higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted all the way up into the heavens. Ezra, he acknowledges this, he acknowledges this confrontation, but his response is to pursue the things of holiness all the more. His response isn't to tear, tear down the institutions of holiness. Instead, his response really is to rebuild them because they've basically been leveled by the immorality of sin. John, I'll just let you close us out with some thoughts on that, on how we as the church, we must look to build institutions 
and really just build up the aspirations of holiness and teaching them to our young people. Um, so I'll let you have some final thoughts on that and then close us out in prayer. Okay. Well, you know, I, it, I think it's extremely important that we pass this idea of holiness along to the next generation, to those coming after us. We kind of assume that they will just, you know, kind of catch it through osmosis or whatever. But with the idea of sin and with the idea that, you know, sin is not really that important, uh, it, it actually downgrades our view of holiness. You know, yeah. if sin is not that important, then God's salvation is not really that important. Yep. And holiness is not really that important. And therefore, God, who is holy, is not really that important. And so we can see how it trivializes all of this. Mm -hmm. And so to excuse or to trivialize sin is, is the basis, the beginning point, where we just reject, we reject all of this. And, you know, we're, we're paying lip service to the idea of holiness, but we're not really pursuing it with what it means. So, yeah, I think it's very important. Certainly. Okay, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your salvation for your holiness, for your wisdom, for your spirit, Lord, that brings all of this to us. And uh, we just ask that we would be uh, uh, capable servants of you and that you would give us wisdom uh, to combat some of these heresies and teachings that we see in our world. In your name, amen.